0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Seeking Witchcraft. My name is Ashley. And today I have back on a repeat guest, Jack. I'm super excited to have him back on. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Ashley. It's good to be back.
1: Of course. So happy to have you here. You may know Jack is the author of Kabbalah for Wiccans or Tarot for Real Life, but today we're going to be discussing his newest book, Queen of All Witcheries, A Biography of the Goddess. Super stoked for this one. When I first heard this book was coming out, I was like, I need to get my hands on this immediately. And I do. I do have it right next to me. I got it pretty immediately. So yeah, Jack, tell us a little bit about the book.
0: I'm so excited about this book. I'm I'm so in love with this book. Uh, so the idea behind this book is kind of twofold. Uh, the first is that just straightforwardly, it's a book about the goddess. So if you're getting into witchcraft or paganism or New Age religion, whatever, uh, you're going to hear a lot of people talking about the goddess. And a lot of the time they're talking sort of with the assumption that you know who that is and what that's all about. Uh, but you know, if you're brand new, you don't know those things. So this is a book, first and foremost, that just introduces people to who the goddess is and what worshiping her is like and like what kind of a deity she is. But then also, I think a lot of books have been written about the goddess, but none of them terribly recently. There was a big publishing boom about goddess worship sort of up through the late 90s and then around the turn of the century, uh, that died off. And there hasn't really been a major goddess book in the past 25 years and well 20 years but anyways uh the problem with that is that a lot of our information has changed since the big goddess publishing boom of the 90s so in particular there are some historical claims that a lot of these books make that we sort of now know to be outdated or untrue uh and also there are a lot of claims about An essentializing nature of womanhood, where, you know, the goddess equals woman and the woman equals womb power and womanhood is defined by having a vagina that menstruates and so on and so forth, all of which was a really important part of a certain kind of feminist polemic in the 90s. But a lot of feminist discourse or goddess worship discourse today doesn't really embrace that rhetoric, both because it's kind of trans-exclusionary, well, not kind of, it is trans-exclusionary, but also because even for cis women, like, it turns out a lot of people don't like being defined by their reproductive organs. Uh, So I wanted to write a book about the goddess that kind of corrected those two things that you find in a lot of older goddess books so that you wouldn't have to constantly be qualifying and hemming and hawing as you're reading through a goddess book. You could actually read something that's like, okay, here's the goddess, here's who she is, and here's what we actually currently know about the history of goddess worship, how the goddess came to be in the world as she is today, um, and how the goddess sort of lines up with current thinking about feminism and its intersection with spirituality and so on.
1: Now, let me ask you, you kind of touched on this, but within the book, when you talk about the goddess, does this book talk about just a centralized idea of just one goddess, or do you talk about multiple different types of goddesses? Um, Kind of where does this book stand on that?
0: Yeah, good. So people will sometimes use the definite article, right? They'll say the goddess. And that can be incredibly confusing because like, don't pagans worship multiple goddesses? Isn't polytheism kind of a thing? I think a lot of the time when people talk about the goddess, I'm putting the word the in scare quotes here, they're more often than not referring to a particular deity. And she is, just to give us like a quick rundown of who this deity is, she's a goddess of the moon. She's a goddess associated with witchcraft. She's generally associated with love and pleasure, various forms of artistic inspiration, creativity, and crafting. A lot of the time she's associated with motherhood, and sometimes you'll even see people generalize further out on that and talk about her as a triple goddess with three aspects, maiden, mother, and crone. And like, that's a very particular deity that I've just described. Uh, there are lots of other goddesses out there, and none of them are exactly that. You know, there are goddesses who have things in common with her. So there are moon goddesses, there are mother goddesses and so on. But the the very particular deity who is all of those things at once, like that's a unique figure. And a really interesting thing about the goddess is we don't really see her described in those terms. We don't see any goddess described in exactly that way before about like the mid-19th century. So there are lots of goddesses all across ancient paganism, but this particular figure that people talk about when they say "the goddess," is actually a very modern deity. She's not a deity that we find in the ancient world. So a lot of this book is exploring like, who is this deity and setting aside questions about ancient paganism, what are the modern ideas and practices and magical movements that shape the way that people think about her today? So going back to your question of like, is this one goddess or there are multiple goddesses? um, People have different opinions on that. Some people think that like all goddesses are one goddess. And so any goddess you can pick out of world mythology is just sort of a stand-in for this one. Other people are more firm about polytheism and think that all of the goddesses are very different and distinct figures. And for the most part, that's that's really a matter of personal theology. People have different opinions about that. But I think that, Regardless of where you stand on that question, at the very least, something we can all agree on is that the particular language that we use when we talk about the goddess um, and the particular images that we associate with her and so on, those are all very distinct and modern things, and there really is a particular unique way that we have grown into talking about the goddess when we're referring to her with that definite art
1: so you touched about upon this a little bit, but let's talk about the idea of soft versus hard polytheism. <laughs> so where where do you personally stand on this?
0: So I I call my polytheism semi-firm.
1: Um, it sounds like you're talking which, about a cheese, like a
0: semi Yeah, like tofu, right? I think I think polytheism is like tofu. Um You can have the really hard polytheism, you can have the really soft polytheism, and I think a lot of people actually end up somewhere in the middle. So I do think that deities are, by and large, distinct from each other, right? I think that Quan Yin is just not the same goddess as the Morrigan. Like, that seems, it it would be a real stretch for me to think of those two as being the same.
1: Understandable.
0: But at the same time, like I do think, A, that the gods, whatever they are and however they are to be understood, the gods are bigger than us and are under no obligation to make sense to us. And B, I think really importantly, like historically, certain cults emerge out of other cults. So the worship of Diana is historically connected to the worship of Artemis, the worship of Ishtar is historically connected to the worship of Inanna. And it, there is, I think, a really important sense in which there is something about those deities that makes them kind of the same, maybe not identical to each other, but there's sort of a, a sameness. There's a resonance between them in that, like, if I'm in a ritual and we're invoking Inanna, but Ishtar shows up, that feels okay, right? That doesn't feel like the ritual has gone totally off into left field. If I'm in a ritual and we're invoking Kuan Yin and the Morrigan shows up, we've done something wrong. We've we, we've fucked up. But
1: <laughs> no, That would be know, quite the ritual to be in.
0: It, that would be a hell of a time. Uh, but so, you know, I think there are certain cases in which, yeah, there's something close enough about certain deities to each other that maybe we don't want to call them exactly the same, but there is there is an affinity there that softens my polytheism somewhat. So I'm, I'm neither totally a hard polytheist nor totally a soft polytheist. I'm sort of somewhere in the middle.
1: So kind of within that same vein, I, I see a lot of people who are first getting involved in Wicca or paganism um, or anything with a goddess worship in it, Will often refer to, and you'd mentioned this a little earlier, the triple moon goddess. So where did this idea come from? And what are your thoughts on this?
0: So the triple goddess does not exist in the pagan world, or the, the ancient pagan world. There are lots of goddesses who have threefold aspects. That's certainly a thing that exists. So we can think about the three graces and the three fates and the three bridges, and so like, you know, there there are lots of threefold deities all over the ancient world, uh, male gods as well as goddesses. But the idea of the triple goddess, and this is a thing that I talk about quite a lot in the book, uh, is really a modern thing that originates with a guy named Robert Graves. Robert Graves, shortly after World War II, wrote a book called The White Goddess where he sort of presented his poetically inspired vision of the goddess. And he suggested that the goddess was a triple goddess who had three different faces governing over three stages of human life or three fundamental mysteries that all people experience. So he sometimes called her the girl, the woman, and the hag, Or other times he called her the mother, the bride, and the layer out, as in like someone who lays out the dead. He didn't actually use the terms maiden, mother, and crone, which are kind of the ubiquitous names for the triple goddess that exists now. But Graves had this idea that there was a triple goddess who was worshipped in the ancient world, and that she ruled over the stages of life, so youth, maturity, and old age, as well as certain deep and profound mysteries uh, being beauty, birth, and death. These were, for Robert Graves, like the three core mysteries of goddess worship. And as that idea worked its way into the pagan community in the 1950s and then on, uh, it sort of solidified into this figure of the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And then it got associated with like the stages of a woman's life specifically. It got linked up with uh, menstruation, with the idea that the maiden is the goddess before she starts menstruating, and the mother is the goddess who menstruates, and then the postmenopausal goddess is the crone. And there are all kinds of reasons that maybe that's something we want to unpack and think critically about. I think a lot of people feel excluded or improperly represented by a triple goddess model, right? It has a very reductive view of what it means to be a woman. But this is an idea that became incredibly popular in the back half of the 20th century. And for a good chunk of time, it really defined the way that people were thinking and talking about the goddess.
1: That whole idea of like a woman who is menstruating is within a certain title of that. It's just a little odd. Not not every woman has that. (laughs) <laughs> some some people never experience that in their life, and uh, yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack with that.
0: Yeah, it's well, and I mean, it like whenever we're talking about the ways that people in the past, even in the recent past, were discussing the goddess or religion or any of these things, we have to sort of simultaneously be critical of the ways in which they done fucked up, and be understanding of the ways in which those things were good for them, like in a particular context at a particular time. So we can look at this triple goddess model now and be like, wow, that's really reductive, right? That treats a woman as basically being a walking uterus. And there are problems with that. You know, not every woman is going to be a mother. Not every woman wants to be a mother. Like women are not just defined by their relationship to a man, whether as a sexual partner or as a mother or so on. And all of that is true. And at the same time, there were a lot of people up in like the 80s and the 90s who found so much power and liberation in this triple goddess model. Because even though it looks reductive and kind of outdated to us now, at the time there was this like breath of fresh air, this feeling of, oh, oh my God, God can be a woman. Like, you know, menstruating, this thing that I was raised in Catholic school and I've been told is punishment for the sins of Eve, like that could actually be something sacred and holy and powerful. So like it goes both ways, right? We can be critical of the ways that people were thinking about the goddess. Uh, even up to the very recent past. And at the same time, we have to like, take some time and understand why they found power in talking about the goddess in those ways, even if those ways no longer serve us.
1: I had an episode with Amy Hale. It was called Hidden History of, the, of Women in the Occult. And we actually talked about this concept, how looking back in history some of the views that were presented to us now may seem very dated and seem very not great in the way that we view the world now but back then they were very very radical ideas that helped shape the feminist movement even if we don't necessarily see it that way in today's eyes yeah it's just an interesting concept to think about like how far we've come in history and and also even thinking beyond that like the ideas that we have now about the goddess per se and And how we view spirituality and how we view women and men and the craft and and just in general in life, like 100 years from now, what they're going to be critical about us now.
0: Yeah, well, and they should, right? Like our relationship to the goddess, our understanding of spirituality should keep changing. Something is wrong if it doesn't keep changing. And we don't have the final word any more than they had the final word 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And that's a good thing, right? Like we, for fuck's sake, we worship a goddess of transformation. Of course, things are going to continue to transform. That's how it's (laughs) supposed to be.
1: That's very true. (laughs) So you mentioned Robert Graves and the white goddess. I know you have a bunch of voices that helped you with this book. So do you have a favorite influential voice that helped shape the goddess movement that you spoke about in the book?
0: I do. I absolutely do. So the book is structured around nine major texts and thinkers that helped shape the modern goddess movement. So it starts in 1861 with a book called Das Mutterrecht by Johann Jakob Bachofen. Uh, Das Mutterrecht in English translates to like mother right. Bachofen had this idea of ancient matriarchy as sort of the governing principle of life in the ancient world which is totally historically false but was very influential and then after that i go up through the golden bough by james fraser then i talk about Aradia, the gospel of the witches by charles godfrey leland the witch cult in western europe by margaret murray the book of the law by alistair crowley the sea priestess by dion fortune the white goddess by robert graves witchcraft today by Gerald Gardner, and then finally a book called The First Sex by uh, a feminist named Elizabeth Gold Davis. And like, those are the core texts that I present as having been incredibly influential on the development of modern goddess mythology and religion. And of those, my absolute favorite, hands down, is The Golden Bough by James Fraser. there's so much wrong with this book right like again we can be critical of things in the past but there's also so much right about it it's um as a work of anthropology it totally fails because james fraser was writing in the late 19th century in a period of time where there was this idea that you could put together a coherent like unified theory of all world mythology. And so he set out to write this unified theory of all-world mythology. The final result ends up being something like 5,000 pages long. Um, it's, It's this massive brick of a book. And there are issues with that because he was writing largely from secondhand information. So he was writing about mythology and rituals from cultures that he had never interacted with and didn't know anything about directly so he was often relying on unreliable accounts that were filtered through other people's eyes he made sweeping generalizing conclusions that missed out on a lot of the really interesting particulars of things that were going on in the various cultures he described and also he was just straight up racist like all of those things are true but at the same time James Fraser built this incredible sort of Prototypical mythology about a goddess who was the source of sovereignty, who was embodied in the land, and how she would have a sacred relationship with a divine king, who was sort of a sacrificial victim, who died every year when the crops died, and then came back when the new harvest came in. and like this whole mythical cycle that he invented, or you know claimed to have discovered has just been so influential on goddess religion and on Wicca in particular. And I just love that book so much. There's so much wrong with it, but also there's so much right with it. And every time I open up that book and I start reading it, I'm like, yes, this guy gets it. There, like there's something in this book that feels like it taps into the essence of what goddess religion is for me.
1: What year was this book written in?
0: Oh God, you're going to put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> Do you
1: know like the, the, an idea, it doesn't have to be the exact year.
0: Yeah. I want to say close to 1890. I want to say 1890. Okay.
1: 1890. okay. So of all the people that you use to help formulate this book, you know, drawing on their ideas, were there any historical bits that you found a bit more complicated to research than others?
0: Yeah. There's always this worry about oversimplifying things. Uh, because it's a fairly short book and there are lots of other things that happened in the world that influenced the development of goddess religion uh, in ways that I don't talk about in the book and that I just sort of made a conscious decision that I was not going to try to address in the book. But there's always this worry that you've left out something really critically important. I think in particular, some of the things that really like kept me thinking, kept me up at night. In the chapter on Margaret Murray, I talk a little bit about the historical association between witches and fairies. That's something that has existed in folklore for hundreds and hundreds of years. And a lot of the time actually, like up through the Renaissance, there's really not a clear distinction between witches and fairies in a lot of like folkloric materials. Uh, They're kind of just two words for the same thing. And there's not a principled distinction the way that we would think about such a distinction now. And, like, I, I struggled a lot with how to talk about that and how that relates to ideas about the goddess. Uh, so, I mean, Margaret Murray in particular, when she's talking about early modern witch trials, has this idea that the woman who's leading the Sabbath is identified as the queen of the fairies. And then because of how influential her book is, Uh, that really gets linked in with a lot of the way that contemporary practitioners start articulating how they're thinking about the goddess. So like so many of us now in witchcraft uh, really link our witchcraft to fairies and link the goddess to the queen of the fairies. Um, But that's also not something that started with Margaret Murray, right? It goes back further than her. She was drawing on things that existed before her, and she just sort of helped to popularize them in a particular kind of modern pagan consciousness. So I think a lot of uh, like the things in the research that maybe gave me trouble, or that I spent a lot of time agonizing over, were things like that, where I present kind of a simple and straightforward picture in, in the book, uh, and there's this voice in the back of my head going, no, it's so complicated. There's so much more going on. And just like trying to to walk that line between making something readable and engaging and not dry as dust, and at the same time, uh, not oversimplifying things and making sure that I'm still giving a realistic and accurate and robust picture of the things that came together to allow modern goddess worship to come into the world in the way that it did
1: as somebody who has a difficult time digesting history for some reason just it like it will not stick in my brain unless i read it a million times i really appreciate you <laughs> simplifying it and making it a little bit more easier to read uh for people such as myself um, that's a you know, there's nothing in the stopping you in the future from writing a textbook and going into all of that detail.
0: <laughs> yeah, but exactly right. This isn't a textbook and it's not meant to be a textbook. Um, but the The purpose of this book is for practitioners who want to know more about the goddess, um, but who don't want to wade through all of the dry historical details. So I tried really, really hard to make this a book that was, even though it's grounded in the research that was still, Accessible for people who don't read history books for fun.
1: That would be me. And I completely appreciate you so much for doing this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're welcome.
1: So, um, switching gears a little bit. So, this is kind of just like a silly question. In the beginning of your book, you talk about this, but I wanted to bring it up on this episode because I've seen people getting dragged on the internet over this. So, can you explain the difference between up, the upper and lowercase g in the word goddess? Because sometimes you'll see people uppercasing the G and like, it's what they use throughout their entire paragraph. And then somebody underneath will argue with them because it's the internet and be like, that's wrong. You're using it wrong. They never explain why or why they think that person's wrong. So I would love for the listeners to be able to hear your view on what this is to help avoid people getting dragged on the internet.
0: You're going to get me canceled. (laughs) Uh, so the short answer is, do whatever the fuck you like. There really is no standardized w- way to capitalize or decapitalize, and anyone who tells you differently is just trying to impose their preferences. Um,
1: that sounds like the internet.
0: It sounds like the internet, right? Yeah,
1: especially the witchcraft internet, the pagan internet, <laughs> the, the witch. Yep, yeah, the the con- internet.
0: The convention that I use in the book is that I capitalize the word goddess when I'm talking about the goddess in scare quotes right that particular deity who is like the moon goddess the witchcraft goddess the mother goddess and so on when i'm talking about that person or goddess then i'll capitalize the word to pick out that i am using the title as like an epithet of a particular deity and when i'm talking about goddesses in general or like the goddess athena or whatever then i will leave the word lowercase Now, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to do it or the best way to do it, but it does, like, if you're explicit that that's the choice that you're making, it does help to disambiguate, um, and particularly in a book about the goddess, you use the word goddess a lot, so it becomes helpful to have just, like, an easy visual guide to when you're referring to this goddess in particular and when you're referring to sort of the concept of female divinity or, you know, something like that. So that's how I use it.
1: Okay. Yeah. You know, as somebody who was raised Catholic, anytime I saw anything involving God, it was always capitalized. There was no question about it. So when I first got involved in uh, paganism and witchcraft and all this, like seeing people not capitalize that G, I was like, Oh, interesting. (laughs) Like that was something new to me that I hadn't experienced before. And then I saw people arguing about it on the internet. So.
0: Yeah. And I mean, people have different feelings about it. Some people are like, you know, well, the Christians get to capitalize it. So why shouldn't we get to do the same? Because our gods are just as important as their god is. And then other people are like, no, that's like a silly, you know, faux pretentious thing that the Christians do because they think that their god is the only one. And we don't need to do that because we are polytheists. And like, there are arguments to be had on either side do the one that makes the most sense to you and don't be an asshole to people who are writing things differently.
1: So I'm going to skip way ahead. I was going to ask you this at the end, but because we're on this topic, I know there may be some people listening that are interested in working with a goddess, but may have come from a monotheistic, male-centered religion. Do you have any advice on how those individuals could start to feel comfortable with developing a relationship with the goddess without the you know, quote-unquote guilt of having a different view than the one they were raised with?
0: Oh, gosh, that's a big question.
1: Um. (laughs) I I asked this, too, because when I came into this world, per se, uh, this was something I struggled with at first because, you know, I was already having issues believing in Jesus Christ as it was. But I believed in some sort of energy and my head just automatically went to it being male because that's what I had been told my entire life. And now all of a sudden I was like, oh, well, maybe there's two of them oh, maybe one's a female. And I was like, oh, that's a lot to try to take in. And it took me a long time to really um, vibe with that, I guess you can say. So, you know, as somebody who wrote a book on the goddess, if somebody wants to work with her, and I know you have some rituals in the book, which I do want to talk about momentarily, but do you have any advice on how people can kind of just like start developing this relationship and just not feeling so bogged down by their previous religious experience? Yeah.
0: No, it's I mean it's a it's a beautiful and it's a really important question. Uh for one thing, that's part of why I have the rituals there, is that so that you can try dipping your toe into the pool and see how it feels. But I think the biggest thing is um to go by what feels right to you. This is, I think this is a really important distinction between goddess religion and certain forms of patriarchal religion that a lot of us are more familiar with. Um, is that a lot of us are raised being told, like, this is the thing that you're supposed to believe. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And if that isn't working for you, there's something wrong with you. And with goddess religion, there's no one who has the authority to say that. So if you're maybe interested in worshiping the goddess, but you're not sure how you feel about that, or you don't know where to start, uh, a lot of it is a matter of just trying something and then taking a step back and sort of asking yourself, how did that feel? Did that feel right to me? Did that feel like it connected me to the divine in the way that I've been looking for? And if it has then you're on the right track. And if it hasn't, then maybe take a step back and try something a little bit different. And it like there's no prescribed belief. There's no one thing that you have to believe. There's no one thing that you have to do. And the most important thing is whether it's fulfilling for you and whether it makes you feel a sense of awe and wonder and connection to something bigger than yourself. And as long as it's giving you that, that's the thing that matters. Um, So I, I think that the biggest thing that I would say for someone who's coming out of, for example, a Christian background and is maybe interested in trying goddess worship but isn't really sure about it is, like, just give it a try and just see if it's right for you. And maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but the only way you'll know if it's right for you is if you open yourself up and try.
1: I love that. And I, I want to add on that just with some experiences I had too with, um, you know, as you mentioned, Jack, sometimes the first time you do something, you might need to take a step back and try something else and then go from there. Um, But I also want to mention that if whoever's listening, if this does apply to you, that if you do something and you feel great and you feel connected and it just feels so right, but then a couple hours later, a couple days later, a couple weeks later, whenever you feel that guilt and you're like, oh no, what did I do? I did something really bad. <laughs> that's normal somebody who has been involved in this, um, who was somebody who was raised with the Catholic guilt and um, you know, it, it does get better. And I think the farther or the, the more you connect yourself with something that spiritually feels so right to you, the more you're kind of able to overcome something that you're being guilted into feeling, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, this, I mean, this could be a whole other episode, but I think a lot of us are raised with, this idea, either explicitly or implicitly, we're raised with this idea that if something feels good, it must be bad. You know, uh, it must be naughty or shameful or sinful. And a lot of that is just sort of unpacking that and saying, I've been told that this must be bad if it feels good to me, but what about it would be bad? And, you know, maybe sometimes, like, some things are bad, even though they feel good, uh, right? Like, if you feel really good when you murder people, maybe don't do that. And, <laughs> but uh, if, you're, if you're doing something that isn't harming other people, Uh, that makes you feel good, that feels right in some way. I think so many of us have been conditioned to run away from that feeling of happiness or pleasure because we've been taught that it must be shameful in some way. And there's this real question that you have to ask yourself, which is, what if it's not? What if it's okay for me just to do something and have it feel good? And, you know, that t- that takes a long time for some of us to, to reconcile to, but it's a good place to end up. It really is.
1: Yeah. And I want to add one more thing to this before we switch to uh, another question I have for you, but um, this concept of um, not harming other people. I know people who may have some religious trauma may think of harming their parents in the sense of if they go and they practice something like pagan or, you know, if they're a, in the pagan umbrella, let's say, or they're interested in Wicca or something Um, and they may think well that's harming my mom or my dad because they're really upset and disappointed in me and they think I'm gonna go to hell Uh, I'm just here to say that you are not responsible for your parents happiness you are your own person and if this is what feels right for you that's what you should be doing
0: and also upsetting someone is not the same thing as harming them
1: that's true that's very true so let's switch to something else in the book. So I wanted to say, so I love that you have rituals in here and I love that you have a solitary version. I love that you have a group version. Um, what were some of the inspirations for some of these rituals? And do you have a favorite one that you wrote about in here?
0: I absolutely do have a favorite ritual. It's the ritual in the Wicca chapter. Um, the the ritual in the Wicca chapter is... Uh, A ritual where you petition the goddess to tell you her name and she gives you a secret name that you can call her that no one else has access to. So it builds this sort of intimate personal relationship with the goddess that is privileged, that is something that you two have together that no one else gets to touch. And I really love the idea of accessing that intimacy and building a real deep personal connection with the divine. But also the way that you get this name is you perform this divinatory ritual and you use Scrabble tiles to do it. And it's just so much fun. I've done this ritual. I think it's great. I love this ritual so much. Um, and I love using Scrabble tiles as part of this like sacred act of divination with the goddess.
1: I think that sounds really awesome. I, I You know, it's funny is right before we started this interview, I haven't gotten to that part in the book yet, but I was... Paging through um, the book itself, and that was actually the one I stopped on. <laughs> so when you started talking about this, I was like, "Oh my god, I just, I just read about that one." Um, I think yeah, I think that's really cool. It's kind of like you know, if you have a significant other or even like a parent, for example, like you're the only person who can call them a certain thing, and it has an impact to it. So being able to do that with the divine, I think, is beautiful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, more broadly, the reason for having these rituals is um, twofold. One is that, again, I didn't want this to be a boring, dry history textbook. This is a book for practitioners, and the idea is not just to, like, sit and talk about the goddess. The idea is to worship her. And so it was really important to me to have rituals here that you can use to worship the goddess, that this is a practical book. Um, But also, I think it helps the information to stick Right. I can talk until I'm blue in the face about like the historical influence of the triple goddess and yada, yada, yada. But it's a very different thing when you actually go and do a triple goddess ritual. It makes it real for you in a way that it isn't when you're just reading words on a page. And so it's a way of taking all of the information in the book and actually using it to help build or deepen a relationship with the goddess, which is ultimately the point.
1: I feel like this entire conversation is just making me want to go outside and like light a fire in the woods and like commune with the, with the divine. Fun fact,
0: one of, it's not one of the rituals, it's one of the exercises, but I do have a thing in the book about just going out, lighting a fire and communing with the divine. So there you <laughs> How <go>. about
1: that? <laughs> I really need to find a place near my home where I could do things like that. Cause I live in a very corporate heavy area and, um, it. it's, I mean, you've been to my place before. It's a little difficult to find some woods around here. Yeah, you don't, um, you don't have a lot of
0: untamed nature around you.
1: Unfortunately not. Um, I'd have to drive there, which I feel like kind of defeats the purpose, you know? <laughs> <laughs> then again, like the witches in the craft, they took a bus to go do a ritual. So, I mean, why can't I? Anyway, <laughs> uh, one other part that I wanted to ask you about was, um, I saw a mention of this in the book. I haven't gotten to where you... S- Speak about it fully but I wanted to ask you because I saw that you talk about flying men in this book and I was curious how you are using it in terms of I, I suppose community with the goddess like is it that you give a recipe and then there's a ritual that goes with it or um and we should probably talk about what flying men is for people who don't know what that is actually
0: <laughs> yeah so um this comes in the context of uh, a lot of testimony from early modern witch trials where people reported that there were certain ointments that they used to apply to themselves before flying to witch meetings. And there has been a lot of hypothesizing, a lot of the scholarship has kind of been debunked, but and, you know, there's been a lot of theorizing that people who were accused of witchcraft or who were practicing witchcraft used ointments involving uh, toxic herbs that would have an entheogenic effect and induce either hallucinations or a feeling of euphoria that, depending on your perspective on witch trials, either caused them to imagine that they were going to witch meetings or that sort of induced a feeling of divine ecstasy whenever they were working magic. Um, And so a lot of modern practitioners have taken inspiration from this and use toxic herbs and entheogenic ointments in their magical work. Uh, If you're going to do this, be very, very careful. Do not fuck around with poisonous herbs. If you don't know what you're doing, you can kill yourself. It's like these these things are dangerous. And a lot of historical flying ointment recipes are so toxic that they will just kill you if you try to use them. Um, I know of at least one instance of a witch who landed herself in the hospital because she was messing around with flying ointments and she didn't know what she was doing. So please, 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 if you're going to use toxic herbs, be extremely careful with them. Um, The recipe that I provide uh, is non-toxic, but it's made with wormwood and mugwort, both of which are very, very mildly psychoactive herbs. Uh, They both contain a chemical called thujone. I won't go too much into the chemistry of it, but it's the same chemical that's found in absinthe. Um, So if you extract the thujone into an alcohol, you can make a tincture that has a very mild psychoactive effect. Uh, It's not going to give you like a real trip, uh, but it's also not going to kill you, which I consider more important for like, if I'm encouraging people to mess around with herbs. Um, but this is something that you can use, uh, prior to ritual or prior to spell work, uh, partly for its symbolic effect, right? You are, you are ritually anointing yourself in a way that prepares you to go on a spirit flight or cast a spell or whatever, but also partly for its chemical effect, right? Like the flying women I give is incredibly mild, but it will give you a little bit of a buzz and that can help to induce the proper kind of ritual atmosphere and mental state for whatever magical or ritual work you're going to do.
1: So I have an episode I did on flying ointments uh, back in season three of my show. Um, I've only used flying ointments. I think I want to say like once or twice. No, no, I've used it at least twice. And uh, what I liked about the one that I had was that it was very mild. Um, It wasn't super crazy. And I just want to mention too, you know, if you are using things like this, aside from, yes, be very, very careful because it can kill you. So be careful when you're doing this. But also, you know, when you're going to be using flying ointment, don't go into this thinking you're going to be having an acid trip, like you took 10 tabs and, you know, you're about to go. Yeah, no, it's it's earth. really not
0: like that. Um no. It's like... It's much more like you've taken one hit off of a joint.
1: That's a good way to put it. And I, I you know, I guess I could also depend on what it is made with. You know, if you have somebody that put some magic mushrooms in there, it might be a little bit. Yeah, deeper. absolutely. Can, can that be absorbed topically? I don't know. I actually. don't
0: know enough about the chemistry to, to say, but certainly different herbs have different effects. So something like datara, uh, which mm-hmm. is much more toxic than the herbs I work with um. At, and also much more psychoactive, right? That's going to have more of an effect than the kinds of herbs that I use and have in the book. Um, I like my flying ointment recipe partly because it looks very witchy. So when you finish making it, it's this like bright poison apple green. Uh, It smells nasty. Like you feel very much like an old school witch when you're putting the shit on. Um, It does, like my recipe has a very high alcohol content. So you do have to keep it in the fridge because otherwise it'll split. I kind of love that, but it like I I feel like a witch when I use that. You know,
1: it's like oh, don't touch that that jar. That's the flying ointment in the fridge, but the drinks are next to it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I I was just gonna say with flying ointment too. If you're gonna be using it, you know, you want to be respecting it. We want to be respecting the spirit of the plants that are in it. Don't go into it thinking you're gonna get crazy high and I don't know. Go to a music festival. That's that's not what this is for
0: no it's like if you just want to get high just do drugs like this is this is a ritual tool to help facilitate a spiritual and magical experience and like getting a bit of a chemical buzz is a part of that but it's not the point of it
1: exactly so going back to the book (laughs) we talked (laughs) about uh, the fun the fun uh parts of flying women. Um, which is really funny because when I when I read that, or when I saw that was in the book, I was like, I know exactly who we talked to for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we probably should have asked this, in, or I should probably have asked this in the very, very beginning, but what inspired you to write this book?
0: I was upset that I didn't have a book about the goddess that I could hand to people without qualification, right? There are a couple of books about the goddess I really like. Uh, But they're all outdated in one way or another, largely because they include historical claims that are now debunked or they have this like really reductive essentialist gender stuff going on. And in both cases, I just like, you know, I would recommend a book to someone and I'd be like, okay, so listen, read this book. But also it was written in 1985. So just skip over everything about the Stone Age and ignore the stuff about abortion and like, you know, And I just like, I wanted a book where I didn't have to do that anymore is really basically the reason I wrote this.
1: I love that. So there was a partially petty reason for it. (laughs) No, it's like, it's not even petty because those are still
0: good books. I still recommend them. Right. But like, um, it's frustrating that we as a community don't have books that are more reflective of the way we think about the goddess now or of the way we understand the history of the goddess movement now. Um, And, like, I think it's important for us to hold on to the old books and to to keep engaging with them, but also to keep making new ones that reflect what our community is like today, rather than sort of crystallizing and only ever recommending the same five books from the 1980s.
1: So outside of you know, the books or the the voices that we've spoke about, are there any other resources that you would recommend for people to look into if they wanted to know more about the goddess?
0: Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of this is going to be trying to find a community, right? Find people with whom to explore the goddess, whether that's online or in person, right? Even if you're a solitary practitioner, I think it's really good to have people that you can talk about your experiences with. So even if that's just like being part of a Facebook group or a Discord channel or whatever, just having a place where you can go and say like, hey, I tried this ritual and this is how it felt to me. Has anyone had a similar experience? Do you have perspectives that you want to share? That's really helpful. Um, You know, I, I think an important part of any religion is community. And community doesn't mean that you can't be a solitary practitioner, but it means that like you don't want to be doing the things that you're doing and then have no one you can talk to about them. Because uh, you need you as a human being need that space to process what's going on in your religious life, even if ultimately you're doing it all in the privacy of your own bedroom with no one else around. Uh, so just like find people to talk about things with Um, My book, obviously, is excellent. I highly recommend it. Uh, But there are also a handful of other really good books um, that I still recommend, I still think are absolutely worth reading. You just have to think about them uh, as part of a particular historical context. So there's a book called The Witch's Goddess by Janet and Stuart Ferrer um, that used to be my go-to recommendation for like a book about the goddess. There's a lot of really great stuff in there that I really like. Um, there's a book called the great cosmic mother by Barbara Moore and Monica Sue. And that again, uh, like there are there are certain historical claims in there that, that I don't really agree with. There are certain pieces of feminist polemic that are no longer the way that like feminism likes to present itself, but there's a lot of really beautiful Poetic inspiration and understanding of the goddess in that book. There's a lot in there that I really, really like. Um, There's also a fantastic book by someone named Carol Christ, uh, and it's called *She Who Changes*. And it's about taking some of the tools of, um, you know, alternative theology that were maybe developed for mainline Christianity, and reapplying them to think about the relationship between the divine and the world in terms of the goddess or a goddess or something like that. So I think those are some of the really good resources like in terms of books that I would recommend for practitioners who are interested in reading more about the goddess from a practitioner's point of view. Uh, If you want to get a little bit more into like the history type of stuff, um, Ronald Hutton has a book that came out fairly recently, I think it's called Queens of the Wild, where he talks about um, sort of historical claims around pagan goddess survivals and things like that that's a really excellent book as well um so those are i think some of my top recommendations off the
1: top of my head well my top recommendation is queen of all witcheries a biography by the goddess (laughs) i would recommend this book to to start for sure um but thank you for sharing that i think that's really helpful just to kind of give people um place to look if after they read your book they want to find out a little bit more just some direction to go towards. Um, one of the things I want to say about your book is that I really loved how at the beginning of your chapters you have a personal anecdote about your relationship or like how you relate to what you're about to discuss. Very beginning of the book you talk about this really amazing personal experience you had while watching Ferris Bueller's day off of all things, which I love that movie, by the way. I don't know if you want to talk about it on the episode or keep that as a surprise for people to read about when they pick up the book. But I thought that was really, really cool. I loved reading and hearing about your experience with the goddess and that I was like, that's cool as hell.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't tell the story. So if you want to, if you want to know the story, you have to read the book.
1: It's, re- it's, it's really cool. You guys should definitely pick it up and read this. If, if nothing more, read this story. <laughs> but
0: that anecdote, that happened while I was in my Gardnerian outer court. Um, I had been with them for about four months at that time. And, you know, like, I was enjoying it. I was showing up. I was liking the rituals, but I wasn't really sure if this was for me. And then I had this experience and it changed my life. And I think in a lot of ways that night is the reason that I am a gardenerian today.
1: I love that. I, I have to say, well, I can't really say this actually made me just have an aha moment that I might have to talk to you about offline, but just, just one of those, uh, one of those moments. Cause I started thinking back to my OC experience and uh, my experience with the goddess and that, and, uh, huh. Okay. Well, anyway, moving along. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, so coming to the end of the episode here, I do have a question that was asked from Azazel. I saw him ask it in more than one spot, so I feel obligated to ask you because I think if I don't, he will be very upset. Um, Azazel from the Feast of Torches podcast would like to know, will you be writing a book about the god?
0: Uh, Currently, I have no plans to. Jason Menke has written a book about the horned god and it's really excellent. Um, So I don't currently feel like I have anything to say that Jason didn't say. Um, You know, who knows? Like, like I say, I think it's really good that new books continue to be produced, even as old books are produced. So like, by all means, I think it would be wonderful if more books about the Horned God come out, just because every author is going to have slightly different perspectives on these things. But currently, I have no intention of writing a book like that.
1: Completely fair. And you're now making me think about how I do have Jason's book. And I kind of want to put your book and Jason's books next to each other in my bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. Okay. So we are at the very end. So if you could give one piece of advice to a brand new practitioner, what would it be?
0: I'm going to go with the theme of some of the things that we talked about earlier. And I'm going to say, do what feels right and do what makes you feel good. So if you're casting a spell or trying a ritual and you walk out of it feeling like your blood is pumping, and you feel euphoric, and you feel really happy, that's a good sign. That's a sign that you're on the right track. And conversely, if whatever you're doing is feeling lackluster, or lifeless, or like you're just doing it by rote, that's a sign that you should change something, because the goal of doing this is for it to feel right, and you want it to feel good in your bones.
1: That is a beautiful answer, and I could not agree more.
0: Thank you so much for having me on, Ashley.
1: Of course, of course, Jack. So how can people find you, and where can they buy your book?
0: Yeah, so my book is available, I think, largely wherever books are sold. Um, So you can find it online through bookshop.org, through Amazon, uh, you can also purchase directly from Llewellyn on their website. You may be able to get it through your local witchy or metaphysical shop, and if they don't stock it, feel free just to ask them, and they will usually be more than happy to order it for you. In terms of where you can find me online, I am on YouTube. Uh, you can just search my name, Jack Chanick, on YouTube. I pop right up. I'm the only one. Uh, I'm also on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash jack of wands w a n d s like the suit of the tarot uh i'm on twitter at jack underscore of underscore wands uh that's also my handle on instagram although i really don't use instagram and i have a blog at jack of wands so i'm sort of all over the internet come and find me
1: awesome yeah i'm i'm in the same boat if anyone is interested in finding me you can find me on uh twitter at seek witchcraft instagram at seeking witchcraft my facebook page is seeking witchcraft podcast it's mostly memes i do have a facebook group as well called Witches is seeking witchcraft um and i have a patreon if anybody is interested in supporting the show it's just patreon.com slash seeking witchcraft but all of that said jack thank you so so much for coming on and talking about your book highly recommend for anybody listening to this to come get it it is excellent and jack is a wonderful source of knowledge so please read it it's amazing and thank you so much for coming on.
0: <laughs> thank you for having me.
1: Bye. All right. All right. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com.